want to encourage you now to turn your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 4 in our series on temptation and handling temptation. Our reading will come from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. The account of Christ and his overcoming of temptation in the wilderness provides for us a model, an example, as well as a warning. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Written by a Jew, about a Jew, who becomes Savior of the world. Matthew chapter 4. It reads this way. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You should not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You should worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again this morning. Our Father in heaven, how great you are. And we pray, Father, that your word would dwell richly within us, that we might know your truth, that we might resist temptation, and that we might follow in obedience. Fill us with your spirit now. Grant to us understanding. Grant to me the words to say that you might be honored and that your word might be divided correctly. For your glory and your name's sake we pray. Amen. Today as we continue our series on the subject of temptation and the fall of man, we look at the subject that is very pertinent to all of us because temptation is something that every Christian battles every day. Every minute of every day, every time when we face life, whether it's impatience with our kids, frustrating circumstances at work, or the exercise of our selfish self-will, when it comes upon us in circumstances that we are faced with, when we are tempted. I remember a few years ago I had a tree that I needed chopped down. 
And I remember asking some of these loggers to come by and they'll give you a, a good bid. And the best time to get your tree chopped down is during the winter time. It tends to be much less expensive, less demand, and so the price goes down. And I would have these guys come by, look at the tree and give me a quote, put the quote into my door if I was not at home. For some reason I came home, I remember that one day, a little bit early in between when certain loggers were going to come and give me an estimate and the first one had stuck his estimate right in the door for me. So I took it out and I looked at it and I remembered the price and uh, I decided I was going to stick that bid back in the door because I knew that they would be competing against each other and the next guy would come along, maybe he would like see and be able to give me a lower bid. And so I came back a little bit later and sure enough, the second logger had come. Sure enough, he had stuck his bid inside of the door. But it wasn't what I expected because the bid was higher than the first, especially since I noticed that the first bid was now gone from my door. I remember how thinking how dishonest it was to steal someone else's bid, but that's how it is. When we want to gain advantage, our temptation comes and the sin can be very strong. Our hope is, though, found in 1 Corinthians when we face temptation. If you'll turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. A very familiar passage to give us hope in times of temptation and encouragement in facing temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, which reads this way. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. In other words, you'll never be in a situation where you're forced to sin against God. You'll never be in a situation where you have no choice but to sin. You may seemingly feel that it may be that case, but you always have a choice, a choice not to choose, a choice to turn to God. God provides a way of escape out of temptation, and so too He provided ways for us, and we look in the account of Jesus today. The account of Jesus who was tempted in the wilderness, seemingly in an impossible situation at times, but there was a way, always a way of escape, always a way to come above the temptation and to live and answer Satan in a holy and godly manner. A way that overcomes, a way that is a pattern for us. So we look at the circumstances, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, and there's an outline in your bulletin to follow. In verses 1 and 2, we look at the circumstances where it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now Jesus, before he began his public ministry, which began around when he was about 30 years old, after he was baptized, the Spirit of God himself led him into the wilderness. This was a confrontation. This was a part of God's plan. That he would be confirmed as the Son of God, the one who had the rightful reign over the earth. God himself doesn't tempt anyone. The devil tempts people. And our own lusts and our own sinful flesh tempts us. But here Jesus was led up into the wilderness. 
And that wilderness was on the backside of Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea. There's a strip of land some 35 miles long and 15 miles wide. And it's a desolate area with jagged rocks. In 1994, I was in Israel and they took us in an air-conditioned bus out to the wilderness. The wilderness where the Israelites had wandered. And they told us before we got off of that bus that we could only go out into the wilderness. And they only recommended us to go out for about 10 minutes. And as soon as I stepped off of that bus, I knew exactly why they had told us that. Because we were blasted with a blast of hot air, some 115, 120 degrees or so, just standing there in that dry heat. I could empathize with all of those Israelites who would complain. You know, all those places, and it was a barren place. The desert it was, it was a barren place with dust and red rocks and jagged nothing was there. And here in the wilderness where Jesus was, it was in contrast to what we had already been studying the past three weeks of the paradise that Adam was in. The paradise that Adam was in when he fell in the garden and took that fruit and ate of it and sinned against God versus here there was not a paradise, there was wilderness. And we see as Jesus, Jesus succeeds in refuting and resisting temptation. And it says here in the scriptures that he was tempted. In the book of Luke and in the NIV... It says being tempted by the devil or in the NIV it says were for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Meaning that during that time these are not the only three temptations that he had. Three that are recorded for us here. But during that entire 40 days he was assaulted by the onslaught of hell that wanted him to fall and distrust and disobey God. And he was attacked for those 40 days when he fasted. And prayed. And he came. He became hungry. And we see the first temptation that Satan brings to him here. And that was to distrust God. To exercise self-will. Says the tempter came to him. Said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. What's the temptation? It has nothing to do with eating bread or satisfying one's hunger. There's nothing wrong with that. Today, later on, we'll have some refreshments. You're going to feel hungry. There's nothing wrong with deciding you're going to go over and have something to eat. That wasn't the point of the temptation. The clues are in the text. We begin with the tempter, who is Satan. He's called the tempter, and he says, If you are the Son of God, or translated, Since you are the Son of God... He sets Jesus up here in a backhanded way to remind Jesus, you're the Son of God, you're the Divine One, you're the One who is going to supposedly save the world, you're the Son of the Living God. And because He was, the Bible says, He was hungry because He was also human. The idea and the temptation was, why don't you turn these stones to bread? The implication, as we'll see later on by Jesus' response, the implication is, you're royalty, you're divine. You're the Son of God, and the Son of God shouldn't starve. God hasn't provided you at this time. Just make some bread on your own. Take for yourself some food. Will God provide for you? He hasn't for 40 days. 
The temptation was this, to distrust the providence of God. To exercise his self-will in doing something when God has not provided yet. It's like the mockery of the people. The mockery of the people when Jesus hung on the cross in Matthew 27, 20, when 40, when he says, If you are the Son of God, they said to him as he hung on the cross, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Satan said essentially the same thing. Prove you're the Son of God. Turn these stones into bread. Take for yourself. God hasn't done it. Do it for yourself. Take matters into your own hands. And we see that that is the case by the response of Jesus. He said, it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, he knew that it would be to disobey the plan and purposes of God. And he was committed to full obedience. Our life doesn't depend merely on food. Our life depends on obedience to God. God has promised to provide. And if He chooses not to, then so be it. If He chooses not to, then so be it. It is like the friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they were called to bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had built, and otherwise they would be thrown into the fiery furnace. And a very famous line that they said, very well known when they were threatened, They believe God and he's told Nebuchadnezzar in essence. God is the God we obey. And God can save us from that fiery furnace. But even if he does not, we will not bow to your idol, they said. Yet, oftentimes, we are completely opposite in our desires. We say to ourselves, after a long period of time, God hasn't done it. God hasn't provided for me. God hasn't made me happy. I don't care about God's ways. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to make myself happy and fulfilled. That's the essence of self-willed sin. We think our way is the better way. We think our wisdom is better than God's wisdom. And if we don't get what we want, we take what we want. Just like Eve did. She saw, she desired, she took. And then her sin was spread to others. And we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared for situations facing temptation. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 26, 41. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Not being spiritually prepared is a huge liability for Christians. I remember when Andy, who had served in China as well, came back and he shared with us about some of the things in which Christians had capitulated in. In one particular area area that they had forsaken Christ for was in this particular area of marriage. It's easy for young people, single people, not to trust God and to take matters into their own hands in this area. If you look at a passage that's very familiar as well in the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. 
But this was an area that Andy had shared with us about, that after he had gone back to China to visit a number of people he had ministered to, a number of people that he had gotten to know how they had left the faith. People in our country do the same thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? In this passage, the idea of being bound together has the idea of being yoked. Two oxen that are yoked together in a committed relationship of some type. A spiritual endeavor. Not only does that include, as this passage is often spoken of in the context of marriage, but it's also broad, broad in the sense any spiritual endeavor, whether it's marriage or courtship or engagement or even a missions trip of some type. We're not to partner with that. We're not to be in a committed relationship, being bound together. For what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Do not be bound together. And yet, for even believers, they capitulate and they say to themselves, God hasn't provided. I will exercise my own self-will and I will decide my way is better than God's way. My wisdom is better than God's wisdom. My choice is better than God's choice. And if a Christian is not prepared, then they will capitulate. Once they do, they leave God, they leave Christ, they leave their first love. They fall prey to the temptation that Jesus faced. And not only in this area, there are other areas that we do. We compromise and we say, God hasn't given to me. I want what I want. Yet to Christians, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 verse 5 says, You have not yet resisted. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in the striving against sin. That's what it's to be. That is what it's to be. You haven't, you haven't, you haven't resisted that temptation until you bleed and die. That is the commitment of Jesus. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. His commitment was to full obedience. Temptation number two. The temptation to test God. The devil, it says, verse 5, took him into the holy city. Had him stand on the pinnacle of a temple. And he said, in essence, throw yourself down. The angels of God will be sent. They will not allow you to be born to strike your foot against a stone. The first temptation was to prove himself as the Son of God. To exercise self-will to satisfy his own way not to trust in God's provision. The second temptation is to test God. The Bible says he took him up and we don't exactly know where this high pinnacle was on the temple. John MacArthur notes it could have been part of the reconstruction by Herod. The reconstruction by Herod likely on the eastern side of the temple that overlooked the Kidron Valley, which was a vast valley right over the side of Jerusalem there. The pinnacle could have been a roof that would extend over Herod's portico and it drops down into the valley. And the Jewish historian Josephus said that it was about 450 feet down. That's about a 40, 45 story building. In the early church tradition, off of that portico, 
James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem in the early days, a disciple of Jesus, James was thrown from that portico and he died as a martyr. So Jesus is taken up to this very high place and Satan quotes to him scripture. Satan quotes to him scripture and you probably already know. You know who knows the Bible better than you and most Christians? Satan does. And he'll use it. He'll twist it and manipulate it so that you'll forget it. And you'll capitulate. That's what the Bible says, he says. The scriptures say this and he'll use it to justify what he's trying to tempt you with. But Jesus wasn't going to prove that he was the Messiah because that would be testing God. Testing God. I mean, if he threw himself off of that portico and he fell 450 feet, do you know what? That would be a big thing, angels swooping down out of the sky, lifting him up. And all of the Jews would be, wow, what a sign. William Barclay, a commentator, writes, that's the type of sign that they were looking for back then. He wrote about a few incidences that happened. There was a man named Thutis who led a group of people from the temple to the Jordan River. And what he said was he was going to split the Jordan River, you know, kind of how, how it was when Joshua crossed the Jordan River and the priests, remember, they had the Ark of the Covenant. They stepped into the river and it split all in half so that the people could cross over into the Promised Land. This man did the same thing. He failed and no one listened to him. Then there was an Egyptian false prophet who said he was going to lay the walls of Jerusalem flat when he got there. Well, he didn't. No one listened to him. According to tradition, you also remember Simon the sorcerer. Acts chapter 8, verse 9, when he comes and he sees the miracles of the apostles, remember? And he tries to buy their power and they rebuke him. Well, Simon the sorcerer, according to tradition, he tried the very same thing that Satan tempted Jesus with. And he jumped off of that portico. And after that, no one listened to him either. The Jews, you see, they were always looking for a sign. This would have been a perfect sign. Jesus said, an adulterous and evil generation craves for a sign. That's the temptation of Satan. To presume upon God. To test Him. Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Once again, you see Jesus counters with the Word of God. Because you see, to test God is to doubt God. To test God is to doubt God. God has already given to us His promises, His Word, and we do not need signs. Even Jesus says, false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. People today, they look for the sensational, they look for the miraculous, someone who can heal, someone who can foretell the future, someone who can do signs and wonders. Sensationalism appeals to our sinful flesh that often doubts and looks for signs. Yet people follow the glitz and the glamour. You just, glamour, you just turn on the TV and you can watch them. The problem is that that sensationalism wears out. And you need a bigger and bigger hype if you're going to follow and have people follow you. They'll need bigger miracles. Greater events, more shows, more far-fetched prophecies to ooh and awe people. And after a while, 
There's a law of diminishing returns that comes into effect. It's no longer attractive. They get bored by the show because the show is why they were there. That's the same thing that happened in the ministry of Jesus. When you read through the book of Matthew, in the beginning, Jesus, in the beginning chapters, he begins to teach. He has a sermon on the mount. He has preaching to many people, thousands of people. And they're so amazed by his teaching. And then you progress on in the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. He begins to do miracles. Miracles and healings. He begins to confirm the message that he has been giving all of this time. And people are so amazed. Thousands of people will come to listen to him and watch him and have him heal them. And they they are fed by him. But Jesus knew their heart. In fact, Jesus escaped from the crowds that would follow from time to time because he knew that they were there for what he could do for them. They were there to see the miracles. But in the end, when times began to become tough and difficult, nearly all of those people faded into the crowd. Some people will say, what about Gideon? What about Gideon? You know, is it wrong to put out a little fleece? To say, boy, if they call at this time, it must be God's will. Or if men, if that thing goes on sale, it must be God's will, I buy that. Or whatever it might be, what about a fleece putting out a sign, I want to know God's will. What what about asking God and testing God in that way? Gideon did it. The problem with watching and looking at the account of Gideon, Gideon already knew the command of God. God had promised him victory, that God would use him as an instrument in victory over the enemies of Israel. But Gideon, in the weakness of his faith, wanted a sign. That sign was an expression of his doubt because God had already spoken. So don't test God. Don't put God to the test. Depending upon some sign or supernatural event, it's really a mask to a doubting heart. We do that often. We say, well, if they accept this or if they will respond in this way, I'll know that it's the will of God. You may not be the will of God. So the first compromise was what Jesus could do for himself. The second one was asking God to do for him. But Jesus would have neither of those. Temptation three, the temptation of compromise. The temptation of compromise. The devil, it says in verse eight, took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and says, all you have to do is you bow down and worship me. The third temptation focused on what Satan could do for Jesus. And here he took him to a very high mountain. What mountain? We don't know. Probably a high point on the face of this earth. But he showed him perhaps probably in a vision. The glory of Rome. The great architecture of Egypt. The riches, the power. The gold that the world had to offer. These, you see, were promised to Jesus in the future. But the path was a difficult one through suffering, you realize. But here Satan was to give the path to glory through a shortcut. Satan is called the prince of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the god of this age. He didn't own all of it, however. 
Satan always has something to offer to you. You realize that? Satan always has some sort of fruit that he wants to give to you. But it's not the genuine fruit. It's often hollow inside. He doesn't ever fulfill all of the things that you think you're getting. I had read about compromise and the, about a contractor who was going to bid on this huge job. The economy was tight for his company. It wasn't doing so well, but this particular project was a very large and very lucrative project. And if his company could win this particular bid, it would put them in a very com- comfortable situation. Everyone was invited to submit bids for this particular contract. And the lowest price would win the contract. So this guy, he goes into his manage- the management's office where he was going to submit the bid to those who would hire. And he went in and the manager wasn't there yet. The project manager wasn't there yet. So he decided he was going to wait around. And as he's waiting for the manager to show up, he notices on the manager's desk, there was on the desk the bid of his foremost competitor. And he knew, he knew that they would be the ones to be, if anyone. So he saw the bid on the desk, but right on the part that has the quote of how much it would cost, on top of that was a can of soda pop. And so it's sitting right there in that area, and this bid is in plain sight. And he looks at that, and the dilemma is tearing him up because he knows that if he knows that number, he can adjust his bid a little bit, come up slightly underneath that, win the bid for that project, and his company would be in very comfortable position. So he struggles with this inside. Should he look or not look? And after a few minutes, he convinces himself that no one will know. He'll just look at that, look underneath that can, and put it back. So he reaches over to that manager's table, lifts up that can to take a peek. And hundreds of little BBs come flowing out of that can. It was a setup, but that's how it is with us. Temptation offers us the ability to gain wealth if we steal it because of greed, doesn't it? Temptation offers us the opportunity to get ahead if we're manipulative or take advantage of others, isn't it? Satan offers to Jesus, you can be king of the world if you just bow down to me just this one time. And after you've succumbed to sin, sin says to you, now that you've done it once, do it again because you're already guilty. The answer of Jesus was, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. To succumb to Satan is to worship him. Because every time we give in to temptation, we give in to Satan. Every time we resist temptation, we give in to God. We may think which one of us actually worships Satan directly, but worshiping him is doing his will. Last Friday, we had heard about a trip from the Boucher family, a trip they took to India, how that how that nation of India is entrenched with literally thousands upon thousands of gods. 
how a, a, a tradesman would come in and there would be like the, the gods of his tools and he would worship each one of his tools in the morning. Yet India, even India, with the thousands of gods that they have, isn't the place with the greatest idol-making factory. The greatest idol-making factory is in here, in the human heart, where we have an idol that we worship. We have bowing down opportunities to prestige, to glory, to sinful ambition, to people who are focused on money or education or degrees, people in our own hearts that we perhaps lift up, etc. Things that in our heart are dominating to us more so than God. You see, sin promises us a lie that if we take that, it'll fulfill our desires. When the greatest commandment of all, if you were to choose to obey just one, it would be to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. That nothing else is to come in between you and God. It's just as Jesus was tempted, so too. We're tempted too. We're tempted in the same way to exercise our self-will, to distrust God's provision, to take matters into our own hands rather than following God, to test God, to doubt God, to compromise, worshipping the idols of the heart. And be aware that, you know, the areas that you are tempted in, someone else may not be tempted in. Oftentimes people are tempted in the area in which they are most strong. In the area in which they are most strong. If there is a person who is very beautiful, they may use that beauty in order to manipulate others. If a person is very influential, they have a position in society, well, they may use that to their advantage in following their own desires. If a person is very wealthy, oftentimes people use that as a way to get what they want as well. We're often tempted in the ways in which we are strong. We would never be tempted to turn stone into bread because we wouldn't have that ability. But Jesus was. And there he was tempted in principle to, what? Exercise his own self-will rather than doing the will of God. So practically, how can you and I resist temptation? How can you and I resist temptation? Remember, first of all, Remember and apply the Word of God. Remember and apply the Word of God. You know, whenever Jesus was tempted, what did He say? He said, it is written. It is written. If you don't know what the Word of God says, if you don't study the Word of God, if you do not apply the Word of God, you fall prey. You fall prey to temptation. And as I've shared with you before, this, there's an old saying that says, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And that is why it is so important, it is so important to help your children, for example, to memorize the Scriptures. Especially when they're young. It is equipping them for a lifetime of a spiritual battle they will face. To have the Word of God hidden in their heart. And having grown up in the church myself, even as a little boy, I remember, I can still remember many of the verses or the songs or the stories or the vivid illustrations that teachers would use. People had taught me the Word of God. 
That like in Colossians 3.16, the word of God would richly dwell within me. That I might be able to resist temptation. And I think of the many passages that keep us from sin. 1 Timothy 6.17, not to be conceited and not to fix our hope. Not to fix our hope on the uncertainty of riches. Or in Colossians 3, verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are here on the earth. 1 John 2.15, do not love the things of this world, nor the things that are on the earth. Philippians 4, set our minds instead on what is true, what is excellent, honorable, praiseworthy, etc. Remember and apply the word of God. And if you're not, it is time to do so. Secondly, be committed to full obedience. Be committed to full obedience. Jesus was here filled by the Spirit of God, fully committed to obey, believing that it would bring blessing. You see, that's my simple logic. When I was a little boy, I remember thinking about this, the logic of my beliefs. And I said to myself, if this book is truly the Word of God, then I want to live by it. It promises blessing to those who would follow it. I want to be blessed. And I wanted to know it so I could follow it and be blessed. So, do I want to be blessed? Then I'd be committed to obeying it and to following it. Because if it is not true, then I might as well just leave it and find out what is true. That I might live in full obedience. There's a story I read. Last week about a dog owner. Dog owner is trying to train his dog. Many of you own dogs. And this particular dog owner would take a piece of meat or a biscuit. He'd throw it on the ground. The dog was over there. He'd say to that dog, don't eat this. Well, the dog would come over and he'd start eating. And he'd start lapping up that piece of meat or whatever. And the master would go slap that dog would recoil and then the master would take it away. And then he'd take that piece of meat or that biscuit and put it on the ground. The dog would be over there and he said, don't eat this. The dog would come over, slap. And then time and time again, he'd say, don't eat this, slap. And finally, the dog finally got it. That if he went to eat the meat, he would be slapped. But it wasn't so much so the lesson that he learned by that. It was what the dog did. The master would throw the meat on the ground and the biscuit on the ground. What would the dog do? He would sit there and he would look at his master. Because looking at the meat and the biscuit was too strong of a temptation. It's the same with us as Christians. Once you take your eyes off of Jesus, once you take your eyes off the things of God, you know what happens? Temptation comes and the tempter wants you to capitulate to come over and to eat the forbidden meat. That's how it is. We want to overcome temptation. We want to overcome bad attitudes. We want to overcome our rebellious heart, our anger, our sins of gossip or greed. We want to overcome immorality or sin. And James tells us in chapter 4, verse 7, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Fix your eyes on things eternal and not on things that are here on the earth. And when we do, we resist the devil. And what happens is happened in Matthew 4.11. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. 
Because when you resist temptation, God ultimately comes and He meets your needs. He meets your desires and He fulfills the desire of your heart far beyond what Satan could ever offer to you. Far beyond what the own desires of your own self-willed flesh would give to you. So follow in obedience to God, resisting temptation, for then you will come into great blessedness. And God will be pleased and you will have joy. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you. And so often, O God, we take our eyes off of you like a dog desiring to have what it wants. But Father, may we fix our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith that we might not compromise, that we might not give in to temptation, that we, O God, might live and live a life that is full of joy and blessedness for your name's sake. Amen.